And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. I'm Dana Balut, and this is Kerning Cultures. Our story today is something of a mystery. It's about a dinosaur called Spinosaurus. Random, I know, but producer Alex Atag will explain. So it starts with uh, not long ago, I went to meet this paleontologist called Nizar Ibrahim at his office. So he's half Moroccan, half German. Uh, he grew up in Germany, but he spent much of his like professional life working in Morocco. He was wearing like a worn leather jacket and boots, like he'd come just straight from a dig site. Oh yeah, you can see one here. So oh, tooth wow. coming out there. And as we were walking upstairs, he was like pointing things out in his office. He was walking me through these like alleyways of tall wooden archive drawers. Snake skeletons and dinosaur bones. And this is a marine. It like basically, again, it looks sort of like how a sort of Hollywood director would imagine a paleontologist's office to look like loads of those sort of plan drawers and rocks and fossils just lying openly. And I followed him through to a side room and he picked up this kind of lump uh, and put it in my hand. This is part of the uh, back of the skull of Spinosaurus, actually. This wow. is the actual and he was like, this is part of a Spinosaurus skull. Like, this is actually part of Spinosaurus. It's real, yeah, you can wow. touch it. You can say you touched a real 100 million year old wow. brain case of a dinosaur. And then on the way out, we bumped into one of his colleagues. Hi, Dave. Uh, looks like what it is. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? And he was like, oh, who are you? Like, what are you here to do? And I was like, oh, I'm... Uh, I'm a journalist and I'm here to speak to Nizar about Spinosaurus. <laughs> and he was like, oh, well, what else is there? Yes, Spinosaurus overshadows everything else. This is Nizar. Spinosaurus is always center stage. <laughs> and, and of course, Spinosaurus is an amazing creature. I mean, it's, it's the thing I love about Spinosaurus is that it really breaks the mold. It's unlike any other dinosaur. It's really unlike any dinosaur, because according to Nizad, it's the first dinosaur humans have ever found that lived in water. And this is huge, because every dinosaur you can think of, except of course for birds, creatures like T-Rex for example, all these dinosaurs, they lived and they hunted only on land. And until now, most paleontologists thought of dinosaurs as only land creatures. So Nizad coming out and saying, you know what, I think we've been getting it all wrong, it meant that if he was right, it would totally reframe how we think of dinosaurs. And it would mean that you, listener, your life would be affected too, because children's books, for example, or toys, or models in museums, they'd all be false and would need to be redone. And movies, too. Like, if you've watched Jurassic Park 3, you'll remember that scene where Spinosaurus fights T-Rex. Based on Nizar's revelation, that scene is totally not how Spinosaurus would have looked. It was like the entire world of paleontology was upended by this 20-something-year-old researcher, Nizar Ibrahim. We wrote an important new chapter in the dinosaur story. Because we used to think of dinosaurs as, you know, land-dwelling animals. We used to think that they never invaded the aquatic world. And here we are with a crocodile-toothed, paddle-tailed dinosaur. And that was huge. But this claim that his findings were a new chapter in the dinosaur story caused huge uproar in the paleontology world. 
Why does this dinosaur keep getting more messed up? And they suggested it was an aquatic pursuit predator that's actively chasing after fish. But I have to say, there were some problems. Peepers that have said, no, it's not aquatic. And then Peepers saying, no, it is aquatic. And then, no, it's not aquatic. And then, yes, it is aquatic. He got people, everybody from people on Twitter, pajama paleontologists, as he called them. because, Because they're just sitting there in their pajamas and just furiously typing on the keyboard. But also very legitimate, experienced paleontologists other people in his field, loads of people criticizing him and basically saying like, dinosaurs live on land, dinosaurs do not live in water, and your research isn't gonna change that. In science, whenever you kind of challenge decade-old dogma, you're always gonna cause a stir, right? So in our episode today, the chaotic tale of this enigmatic creature, the Spinosaurus. how it was nearly lost forever before one paleontologist happened to come by a set of bones in the Moroccan desert. And that chance encounter changed everything we thought we knew about dinosaurs. And it ignited a spiky debate, pun intended, over a 25 million year old animal. And the debate and the drama just won't go away. The story of Spinosaurus is a pretty incredible one. And I don't think that there's really another story like it in the world of paleontology. Spinosaurus was was named by a pioneering German paleontologist, Ernst Stromer von Reichenbach, that's his, his name. He was an aristocrat, lived in a beautiful castle, and um, he scoured the Sahara in search of fossils. He did a lot of work in Egypt, and he described lots of amazing creatures, but Probably his most famous expedition was his last expedition to Egypt, 1910 and early 1911. He arrived by ship in November 1910, and the main purpose of his visit was to visit this place called uh, the Baharia Oasis, which is a few hundred kilometers southwest of Cairo. It's this sort of incredibly rich area where, like for decades, paleontologists have found all kinds of dinosaur fossils and dinosaur bones. Um, and then Stroma described this this entirely new prehistoric menagerie, um, lots of spectacular creatures, lots of big predators. Stroma himself, he so he actually only stayed in Egypt for a couple of months before he went back to Germany, but he established a local crew who carried on this dig. Uh, and over the next couple of years, by 1914, they set everything that they'd found in plaster and shipped it back to Stromer, who was in Germany. Um, And when it got to him, he started cataloging everything. And one of the specimens that stood out to him in particular was the Spinosaurus. And he only had a few bones of Spinosaurus. He had a slender, elongate lower jaw, and he had several big, tall spines forming an incredible, spectacular sail on the back of this animal, Um, and a few other bits and pieces. So from these bones, he knew that this was a very large animal and it was a very strange and unusual dinosaur. So in in Stromer's technical drawings, the way he imagined Spinosaurus was standing on its back two legs, uh, posed a bit like a kangaroo with its tail on the ground. And the skull still kind of looked like, you know, a generalized predatory dinosaur, kind of a, a pretty robust 
skull and and uh, but you know with a big sail on its back and the bones were mounted at the you know Bavarian State Collection Museum in Munich and kind of formed the centerpiece of the museum's dinosaur exhibit and so you know it's kind of like a great story up to that point for Stromer you know he uncovered these incredible things he was a well-respected scientist but then everything changed when uh, World War II erupted Stromer's life took a very different path. You know, he was a very outspoken critic of the Nazi dictatorship, um, and he suffered greatly during the war. Yes, um, he had three sons. Well, one born in 1921, my father Wolfgang, born in 1922, and Gerhard, born 1927. So this is Ortraut Bornbauer. She's uh, the granddaughter of Ernst Stromer. I managed to reach her while she was at the family castle, so the one that Stromer lived in uh, just outside Nuremberg. And she told me that all three of Stromer's sons were enlisted to fight in the German army during World War II. But by the time the war ended, uh, two of them, Ullmann and Gerhardt, had both died in the fighting. And by the end of the war, his third son, Wolfgang, still hadn't returned. Nobody knew where he was. And Stromer and his wife for a long time believed that they, they'd lost all of their children in the war. And my grandparents believed for quite a long time that they are childless now. And then in 1950, so around five years after the war ended, he came home. And it quickly became clear that Ortraut's father had been captured by the Soviet army and sentenced to 25 years in a prison camp in Siberia. After six years imprisonment uh, near Stalingrad, they just set him free and sent him back. We didn't find out why ever. And he, he came back. My father totally destroyed. Took quite a long time to recover from this. And while he was there, I mean, it just sounded like what Oshra told me was was made to stand for like long periods of time, basically in a sort of icy prison cell with no shoes or socks. I found letters where he told that he had to stay for three weeks up to two months in isolation, standing in ice cold water and getting once a day a little bit of bread and some foul soup. When she was young, she remembers her dad telling her that despite the awful conditions in the camp, um, sometimes he was given nutmeg and he used to trade it for bread with other prisoners, which everyone thought he was crazy for doing because obviously you'd, you'd try and, you know, you'd want bread over nutmeg because you could eat it. But what they realised was that when they were given the foul soup and mouldy bread, he'd rub the nutmeg on the inside of his nose and it made it possible to like eat more food. The smell would disguise the food. So Stromer lost two of his sons in the war, but he also lost his life's work. It was a very dramatic time um, for his family, but then also for his scientific discoveries. The Spinosaurus remains that he'd gathered on that last trip to Egypt, um, they were in the Bavarian State Collection Museum right in the middle of Munich. And he knew his fossils were at risk there. And so, like, you know, the, the Allies were running air raids over the city by 1943. And... Buildings around the museum were being destroyed, so he was like he begged the director to move the Spinosaurus remains somewhere else, so like outside of the city, somewhere safe from the fighting. 
And I found letters uh, when he wrote to the director of this uh, Academia of, of Science that these bones are so important and should uh, be hidden in concrete. And the director, a strong Nazi, said no. The director of the Munich Museum was an ardent Nazi supporter, actually. And he essentially prevented Stromer from having his fossils transported to a safe location outside of, of Munich. And then in April 1944... You can see that the Pathfinder force are doing their work with deadly accuracy. The main force of bombers begins to arrive. The attack starts to build up. A Royal Air Force air raid targeted Munich. The old city of Munich was targeted, and that included the Bavarian State Collection Museum. And so the museum was destroyed, and the only remains of Spinosaurus were reduced to, to, to dust, to rubble. Yet another victory for Bomber Command. Another successful action in the great night offensive to cripple the Nazi war machine. The big ones, the important ones, they are all gone. And just nearly broke his heart. The museum wasn't the target of the bombing, which I, I guess kind of makes it a bit more heartbreaking. Uh, the target of the bombing was Gestapo headquarters uh, nearby, and the museum was just collateral damage. And so these fossils, which were, you know, like a one-of-a-kind window into the life of Spinosaurus, because at this point, this was the only Spinosaurus that had ever been found. You know, they'd laid buried in Egypt for 95 million years, and then Stroma came to them, and just a few decades later, they were destroyed. And so we just had this short glimpse And then this, this creature was, was lost, seemingly forever. Stroma's original Spinosaurus bones would never be recovered. He kept detailed notes, and there are photographs of the remains. We're very fortunate in that Stroma was a pretty meticulous scientist. Um, because But to a paleontologist like Nizar studying Spinosaurus today, those notes obviously aren't enough. Um, You know, in this gap where there's no real skeleton that you can study and model from, nobody really knew what Spinosaurus looked like or how it lived. The best guess that we had was just that kangaroo lookalike that Stroma had illustrated in 1919. But the dinosaur remained a mystery and it kind of became the, the holy grail of dinosaur paleontology. You know, I think um, many paleontologists, whether they'll admit it or not, were hoping and You know, dreaming that they would find a new Spinosaur skeleton because there was just an animal that they knew was maybe bigger than T-Rex. It was unlike any other dinosaur, had this giant sail on its back. Um, and, you know, it really remained a mystery for a very long time. And so, in some ways, Spinosaurus became this almost mythological creature, but it still remained relatively obscure. I think it only really entered popular culture in a big way uh, in 2001. when uh, Jurassic Park 3 came out. They didn't really know what Spinosaurus looked like, but they just kind of said, well, we know it probably had an elongated snout, it had a sail on its back, and, you know, we'll just go with that. Because they were looking for a big predatory dinosaur that could challenge the T-Rex, right? So that big bad dinosaur on the block. 
was Spinosaurus in that movie. And so that's kind of like quite the entry <laughs> into the world of pop culture. But yeah, as Nizar said, um, that Spinosaurus in Jurassic Park was based on a best estimate because still nobody really knew what it looked like. But all that changed in 2008 when Nizar was on a trip to the Moroccan part of the Sahara. Yeah, I mean, working in the Sahara is like, it's like looking for a, a needle in a very big haystack. It's not the easiest place for fossil hunting. You know, there's snakes and scorpions and sandstorms. And so you have to climb up these, these slopes and they're covered with rocks and boulders. They're not very stable. It's quite steep sometimes. And you're doing that in extreme temperatures sometimes. You know, when you're out there in July or something, it's really, really hot. And, you know, I always tell, you know, sometimes bring students out there. I always tell them this is probably the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. But it's also, you know, an adventure of a lifetime. We've collected thousands and thousands of fossils over the years, everything from turtles to crocs to dinosaurs to flying reptiles, you know, fish, snakes, you name it. But it was only in 2008 that I um, found out about a new set of bones. And uh, we came across this guy who was a, a, a fossil hunter which is basically somebody who makes a living by finding fossils and selling them to private buyers. Um, paleontologists like Nizar have a kind of tricky relationship with these guys because on the one hand, they, you know, they come across really important stuff sometimes, um, things that paleontologists wouldn't otherwise find. But on the other hand, they operate in a kind of legal and ethical gray area. Um, they'll sell their finds to private buyers and exporters. And if they do that, Often it disappears and researchers and paleontologists, you know, can't access it. You know, some important specimens might disappear in a private collection somewhere or, you know, just be dispersed, you know. Um, so, you know, different bones that belong to one skeleton might be sold to, to different people and what have you. So, And it is a big trade in Morocco. Like, according to some estimates, uh, it's worth $40 million a year and about 50,000 people depend on it for their livelihoods. So yeah, guys like Nizar have to kind of learn to work with them. So anyway, Morocco, 2008, um, Nizar has just come back from the town of Urfud from a dig site and he got speaking to this fossil hunter. Um, and this guy showed Nizar a cardboard box that had some bones and fossils inside it. And I didn't really know what those bones were. It was really hard to tell. They were covered in sediment and, and you know, rock. Um, but you could tell that they belonged together you know in fact some of the bones were still stuck together in the same block of rock and um i then decided that we should bring those fossils to the university collection in casablanca at the university of casablanca where uh, my my moroccan collaborators work and that's what we did and i thought that maybe one day i'd be able to figure out what these mysterious bones are um, i knew there were dinosaur bones but that was about it so he left those bones behind in the museum in Casablanca. And a year later, he was on a research trip to Italy. And a couple of these Italian researchers he was with, they said, we've got this partial skeleton in the basement of our museum. Uh, we're not really sure what it is, but we know it was probably taken illegally from somewhere in North Africa. And it's obviously something big. So did Nizar uh, want to come and take a look at it? 
And I looked at the bones and, you know, I was pretty sure that we were looking at a partial skeleton of Spinosaurus. You know, there are leg bones and, you know, um, jaw pieces. Um, but most importantly, there were big, long spines. And I picked up one chunk of spine and I looked at the inside structure. It was very dense bone. And when I looked at that piece of bone, I thought, you know, this looks almost identical to the strange blade-shaped piece of bone I had come across in Morocco. Same color, same texture, you know, same size. And I thought maybe these two sets of bones actually belong to the same skeleton. And if that is true, then maybe I can find out where exactly the dig site is. But the problem I had now was, of course, that I had to find the, the, the guy who had shown us the bones in the cardboard box. So the fossil hunter he'd met a few years earlier in Morocco, he had to find him to ask him where he dug those bones up from. And if he knew that, Nizar could go back to the dig site himself and see if there were any more. The problem is, like, there's like thousands of these guys. Nizar didn't have his phone number, or, you know, didn't stay in touch with him in any way. And so I had to find this one guy in the Sahara, which was just a crazy idea. It was just, you know, mission impossible. But I still thought, you know, I have to try at least, because if I find the guy, then, you know, maybe I can convince him to take us to the dig site. And I know it kind of sounds like the beginning of a, like, ridiculous buddy comedy movie, but he told me that he went back to Morocco not long after that trip to Italy with these two colleagues. When I told my Moroccan colleague what I wanted to do, he, he told me, well, okay, I know we met this guy for a few minutes, but do you have his name or his address or his phone number? And we didn't have anything of the sort. In fact, the only thing I could remember about the man was that he had a moustache. Which does not narrow it down very much at all. So they basically just go back and they started speaking to fossil hunters hanging out in the same place that they hung out on the last trip, looking for this elusive man with a moustache. It was a wild goose chase and we talked to lots of, of local fossil hunters and we traveled to far-flung corners of the desert and we just couldn't find the guy. On the last day of our search I just felt like this huge sense of disappointment because I really did believe that we would find the guy but then I realized that there was just an insane level of wishful thinking probably right I mean what are the odds that you're actually going to bump into this guy? And then we're just sitting and, you know, sipping tea, mint tea in this, this little cafe. Uh, a man walked past us and I just saw his face very briefly. And I thought, am I just hallucinating or was that the guy? Because he looked very familiar and he did have a mustache. And then I looked at my Moroccan colleague, Samir, and he also had this strange expression on his face. And I think we both looked at each other. I was like, I think this is the guy. I know how unlikely the whole thing sounds. I have fact-checked this as best I possibly could. I've spoken to people who know Nizar. Everyone I've asked about it says that it was true. So yeah, Nizar caught up with him, um, told him what they wanted to do. And uh, he said, yeah, he was happy to take them to the dig site. Uh, apparently he said he was finished with it. Like there was nothing else that he was interested in there. And he told them something else. He said that some of the bones from this site I actually sold to an Italian guy. So Nizar was like, oh, well, then that's the Italian guy that donated them to this museum that I was in. So it kind of confirmed for Nizar, like, oh, this is the second half of that dinosaur that I saw in Italy. 
All right, so we're looking for remains of an enigmatic giant predatory dinosaur called Spinosaurus. This is from a video that Nizar recorded on his trip. So what you see here is the Sahara, uh, one of the driest places on Earth. So they go back to the original dig site with this fossil hunter and uh, they're in this place called the Kemkem, which is near the border between Algeria and Morocco. Today it's like a dry, arid desert, but 95 million years ago when Spinosaurus was around, it would have been this like lush river system. And so Spinosaurus was living in this place I call the River of Giants because Spinosaurus is a huge predatory dinosaur. It's the longest predatory dinosaur known, but it also lived alongside giant crocs and big car-sized fish. It's a really extraordinary place. So they're following the fossil hunter and eventually they get to the dig site uh, the place where he'd found these bones that Nizar was curious about. And we immediately realized that there were bits and pieces, little fragments weathering out. The fossil hunter had excavated a, a relatively small area at the dig site. We removed many, many, many more tons of rock. And what you see here is um, our dig site. You can see that we removed a huge amount of rock um, to get to the bone-bearing layer. Under very difficult conditions, you know, like... Um, extremely hot scorching temperatures and you know we had everything sandstorms and team members getting seriously sick and I mean it was really tough. So over the next year or so Nizar and his team uh, eventually uncovered somewhere between a quarter and a third of the creature and from that and from existing studies of similar dinosaurs they built a life-size 3D model of what they thought Spinosaurus might have looked like and it was not what anybody expected including Paul Serino, uh, a professor at the University of Chicago who was working with Nizar on this study. I opened up the crate. I'll never forget this. I opened up the crate, and one of the first bones I pulled out was one of the leg bones. And I immediately knew that this was a very different kind of spinosaur. This was a, some kind of a semi-aquatic animal. That's where the story began for me. It was immediate sense of, wow, this is a dinosaur that has gone semi-aquatic, and it would have been truly the first one. So when we look at Ernst Stromer's uh, initial 1910 Spinosaurus diagram, as I said before, it was this upright kangaroo T-Rex-looking creature standing on its two back legs. Nizar's illustration in 2014 had it on four legs with this enormous like sail on its back. But the thing that freaked people out the most was that they... Not necessarily the way it looked, but the fact that they were also claiming that this was a water-dwelling dinosaur, or a river monster, as Nizar puts it. Um, that it could walk on land, but that it spent much of its time in the water. Um, and there were a few reasons for this. So firstly, it had these cone-like teeth, which they concluded were best suited to catching and eating fish. And then it had nostrils like halfway up its skull, so that it could dip its head halfway into the water and still breathe. Uh, and then there was its bone density. And so all predatory dinosaurs, including modern birds, have very nicely weighed skeletons. So this is Matteo Fabri. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. He's done a bunch of research in Morocco uh, with Nizar and was the co-author on that 2014 paper. That's the one that found Spinosaurus to be a semi-aquatic dinosaur. And basically the thing that got him excited about Spinosaurus bones was that they weren't hollow like you would expect to find in a land-based creature. Um, they were completely dense. 
And so that was kind of a eureka moment. We knew that this animal was probably spending a lot of time in water, like modern, modern crocodiles or penguins or uh, crocodilians. So it was this like drastic development in everything we know about dinosaurs and it yeah, lit the paleontology world on fire and suddenly Nizar was everywhere. His students describe him as a real-life Indiana Jones. When National Geographic needs someone to put together a Spinosaurus, they call Nizar Ibrahim. This is when he started giving TED Talks. Uh, you know, he became a National Geographic fellow. Blockbuster exhibition and it was an interesting time. These dragons from deep time are incredible creatures. They're bizarre, they're beautiful, and there's very little we know about them. For a young scientist, there's a lot to take. But Nizar and his team weren't done. Since then, we have continuously found more lines of evidence and, and really built on that initial interpretation. And everything we find out about Spinosaurus reinforces the idea that this was a largely water-dwelling dinosaur. They spent the next few years going back to Morocco, back to the same dig site, and in 2020 they came out with another report. And this was the report that kind of sent the paleontology world and, to some extent, the world at large into a tailspin. When we published our paper in 2020, Spinosaurus essentially broke the internet, right? It was crazy. But first, we're going to take a quick break. So in that 2014 paper, Nizar and his team came out with some pretty radical claims about how Spinosaurus looked and how it lived. Uh, they said that it was the first water-dwelling dinosaur we'd ever found evidence for. And that was controversial in its own right. But then in 2020, he went even further. Nizar and his team released a new paper that basically said, no, 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 we, we don't think Spinosaurus walked on four legs at all. They'd spent a few years between 2015 and 2019 going back to the ChemChem -chem and excavating more around the same animal. And they found this enormous tail structure. Um, and when they started putting together the tail, they found that it was completely different to other carnivorous dinosaurs' tails. Its bones weren't interlocked, meaning that it might have been able to wiggle or flap its tail, um, a bit like an eel propels itself through the water. Our colleagues in Harvard built this cutout model of the tail that was in a water tank so we could actually quantify the, the um, advantage that the tail would bring to an animal. And then they were ready to release the new artist's impression and this was completely different again. So this time it looks like something between like a giant lizard slash eel, but the size of a T-Rex. So when he came out with that, the internet just had a field day. On, on social media, there was just thousands and thousands of pieces of artwork that people were uploading of this new Spinosaurus with its paddle tail, right? It was everywhere. It was on T-shirts, face masks, you know, as a pandemic, you know, toy companies are releasing new models of Spinosaurus. And you'd look on Twitter in multiple countries, you'd look at the top trending things and Spinosaurus would be one of the top trending things, right? And I can see why. I mean, it's such a good story. Like you have World War II, like Nazis, like these sort of serendipitous moments, chance encounters, like even the Tsar himself said it was like a Hollywood movie. But all of that is not the whole story. After Nizar's new paper in 2020 came a series of other papers from well-respected paleontologists, and they didn't buy into the water-dwelling theory at all. And similarly, myself and my colleague Tom Holt uh, looked at this um, and 
This is the British paleontologist David Hone uh, giving a talk at the Royal Institution in London. He didn't want to speak to me for the story. Um, he said that two-sided productions confuse balance with evidence, and he felt that it wasn't a good way to communicate scientific disagreements. But David Hone's theory is basically that the Spinosaurus was more like a heron, so he calls it the Hell Heron, which I think is a really <laughs> quite a catchy name. Um, that it was able to kind of wade into shallow waters to catch fish with its long snout, but it wouldn't actually have spent any time underwater. And he thinks this mainly because of the shape of its skull um, and because he says the sail on its back would likely have just been, you know, it would have caused too much drag for it to have been an effective swimmer. And I did also speak to two paleontologists who have come out with a new paper uh, just in the last few months, actually, which... I mean, the title of the paper is literally Spinosaurus is not an aquatic dinosaur. So, I mean, it gets straight to the point. And one of those authors was actually Paul Serino, who worked with Nizar on that 2014 paper. Our panels sort of diverged scholarly. Nizar went off and came up with a different view of the dinosaur, much more aquatic, uh, as a, a really an excellent swimmer, one that would be able to dive and pursue prey underwater. And... That was never my understanding of the dinosaur from working with the bones originally and from our original paper. There were a few things that I would correct from the original paper, but I was pretty convinced it was a semi-aquatic animal, which is very different in terms of how we think it lived its life. And so what we did in the new paper was to start from scratch, that is to say, with the fossil bones, the CAT scans, rebuild the skeleton and and when they did that, they basically they, they couldn't find any evidence to support this idea that Spinosaurus lived a fully aquatic lifestyle. I think that Spinosaurus spent more of its time on the coast, incapable of swimming because its balance of its body would mean it's very unstable. But when I asked Nizar about all of this, like he's still completely confident in his work. I don't think um, I really doubted our our science. We were the only people working on the Spinosaurus skeleton and nobody else had worked on Spinosaurus, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like there was someone else with experience working on this particular animal, right? So obviously there is a lot of disagreement between how different paleontologists think Spinosaurus lived. And I was left wondering, like, um, you know, as a journalist, what am I supposed to believe? So I asked Matteo Fabri. Uh, he's one of the paleontologists who works with Nizar. Yes, so... First of all, I think that you are not supposed to believe anything. Okay. <laughs> Meaning that uh, when we speak about science, you should look at the evidence and what we should just understand what's going on. The main point for Matteo, he's basically saying like, you can point to the skull and say that the skull isn't perfectly suited for living underwater, but you can point to any one feature on any animal and say, well, that isn't perfectly suited to their surroundings. One feature isn't indicative of an entire lifestyle. My point uh, against the other hypothesis is that they take uh, feature by feature, trying to dismantle how every single feature is not indicative for uh, water-loving ecology. But in my opinion, it's a very naive approach Therefore, I think that we should look at the animal uh, as a whole, not as a fisher by fisher, if that makes sense. 
So there's a lot more work to do. Um, and when I spoke to Nizara and Mateo, they were, they were literally just about to leave for another expedition to Morocco, uh, hoping to find more evidence to support the aquatic theory. I think this debate will probably carry on, like sort of igniting and reigniting itself every time a new paper comes out. And I think that the, the sort of quest to find answers to this mystery dinosaur will outlast all of us. But for now, something Nizar can control is how future generations will access all of this research material and peel back even more layers to the mystery. Like what happened to Ernst Stromer's Spinosaurus in World War II, where it was completely destroyed. That's an extreme case, but it's also an example of like how delicate this kind of research is and how much it depends on these incredibly rare and fragile fossils. Um, and for Nizar, I mean, it's, it's about doing as much as he can, but also like passing it on to other researchers in the future generation to maybe finally get to the bottom of this mystery. It's really about building up capacity for the, the long haul, right? So we established a research collection in Casablanca, at the University of Casablanca. And it started off pretty small, and it is now one of the largest fossil collections of its kind for uh, Cretaceous vertebrates from, from Africa. And so a lot of what I'm doing in Africa is also about capacity building. So all of my fossils have been returned to Morocco, right? Which is not the way this has been done in, in many cases in the past, right? Where people are still taking a somewhat, you know, kind of neo-colonialist approach, right? But I think that we don't live in colonial times anymore. We have a responsibility to make sure that these, the fieldwork we're doing is, you know, a win-win scenario. So maybe, you know, long after we're all gone, someone will end up picking up the work that Owen Stromer had started and then Nizar Ibrahim continued um, and they'll look at this minefield of conflicting evidence for how Spinosaurus might or might not have lived. And they'll be able to pass through it and find a definitive answer to this dino mystery that has plagued uh, and frustrated and broken the hearts of paleontologists for decades. But until then, <laughs> Spinosaurus is going to drive people crazy. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and edited by me, Dana Balut. Fact-checking was by Dina Sabri and sound design and mixing by Yusuf Duwazu. Our team also includes Nadine Shakir, Zena Duidad, and Finbar Anderson. A special thanks to everybody who spoke to us for this episode. Nizar Ibrahim, Matteo Fabri, Rochrat Baumbauer, Paul Serino, and Don Henderson. We'll post photos of Nizar's expeditions and the ever-changing artist impressions of the Spinosaurus over the years all on our Instagram. It's at Kerning Cultures. And I don't know who won that fight. I should probably know that. Um, we should definitely find out who won. We should definitely that find fight. out. Let's Google it. Jurassic Park. Who wins T-Rex v... Spinosaurus wins the fight. Spinosaurus won. Okay, there you go. 